to grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 20 for this morning's Bible study. Luke 20, as we proceed through Luke's gospel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as do most Calvary chapels, we always pick up at the verse we left off. So you always know where we're going to be on most Sundays. And while you're doing that, I'll ask the Lord for his grace. Now, Father, as Jesus taught us, we can do nothing without Jesus' help. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus told his disciples. And so, Lord, we, we gather that that includes spiritual matters, like hearing your voice, accepting your word, and putting it into practice. So we pray, Father, for all the areas that concern us this morning, and now your living word, May you touch our hearts and show us how the word relates to our situation at hand and how to apply this word and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel means good news, as most of us know, but ironically, there's much in the message that can be disturbing for people who know they're in trouble who feel the weight of their sin or poor choices that they've made in life and the consequences that follow, the struggle with guilt, maybe the fear of facing death, the gospel is the greatest message of all. The love of God, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of everlasting life, the idea that God is for me and with me and present in my life today. But for others, the news is not so good. There are some rather harsh denunciations against those who reject God and the truth, who'd rather walk in darkness than in light, those who refuse to believe and repent, and especially nice religious people who appear to know him and represent him, but by their lives deny him. The lips profess, but the heart is far away. And those people, for those who are uh, not genuine, but fake and false and hypocrites, the Lord in the Bible reserves the harshest denunciations for them. And so here at the close of Luke 20, as we've been seeing, Luke is wrapping up Jesus' confrontation with these religious fakers which kind of began ever since Jesus has entered Jerusalem this Passion Week. And that's where we're at in the Gospels. Now, if you've been following along, you'll remember that really this has started really on Palm Sunday, which would be three days ago, according to where we're at in the text. The leaders criticized the praise at Palm Sunday's triumphal entry. They're singing about the Messiah. They want that stopped. Jesus kicks the money changers and the merchandisers out of the temple as soon as he gets into town. Now he's at the temple every day, and he's in battle with these leaders. He's telling parables that expose them and paint them in terrible light and, then, and talk about their doom. And this gets them furious, and they plot to kill the Lord. 
Now, they attempt to trip him up with trick questions, and we've been doing that every week, seeing all their different groups come up and say, well, solve this riddle or answer this question, trying to get him into some trouble and to discredit him and his ministry and his claims as Messiah. But he always answers well. Even there, they say, teacher, thou hast answered well. You see, and now he silenced them. This is where we're at here in Luke 20. And so now they have been, as the scriptures say, muzzled. He has silenced his opponents. They're the temple courts. It's Tuesday, uh, maybe sunset. Wednesday's going to be a free day. The only thing left coming up is Jesus' uh, conversation with the disciples about the end times and how the temple will be destroyed and the prophecy of the end of the world. That's the only conversation that separates us from uh, the Last Supper. So we're there. And these verses that we're going to look at today are wrapping up Jesus' confrontation there publicly. Publicly, Passion Week is coming to a close today. Jesus will have the last word, and their mouths are silenced. And that's very fitting to wrap up Passion Week publicly. Because Paul the Apostle says, on that great day, when the Lord appears in great glory, it says, quote, every mouth will be shut. So it's fitting here that they have nothing to say. Quote, and from this point on, they dared not ask him any further questions. And so on that great day, when every eye will see him, There will be nothing to say, and the silence of the unbeliever in that moment will give glory to God, just as it did in the temple courts. So this morning here in Luke 20, Jesus' last words about these bad boys are going to be directed not to the bad boys. He's done with the bad boys. He turns to his disciples and talks about the bad boys as if to warn them, these guys are going to be the guys who start the Christian church. In just a few chapters, Acts chapter 1 and 2, we're going to give birth to a church. And so he looks at his disciples and say, about these bad boys, make sure that some of these attitudes are never to be named among you. You see? And then in walks a widow while he's denouncing them to his disciples. Uh, A widow walks in. There's a chapter break which isn't in the original manuscripts chapter breaks. They came in the 13th century. So we're going to go into a little bit, four verses into the next chapter, and see this widow walk by while he's teaching them, and he's going to now contrast the bad boys with the real deal. And she's going to put in her two pennies in the tithe box, and he's going to ring the bell, and he's going to teach us about what to avoid and what to emulate. All right, so those are the, the kind of the two ways we're going to look at it. Let's read the text starting at 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, so he has their attention, to, to the disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. 
chapter 21, verse 1. As Jesus looked up, see, there's a connection there. He saw the rich putting in their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And so there we conclude for our morning's reflection. And as I said, we're going to look at this teaching in basically two ways. What we could learn from and to avoid Because somebody has so rightly said that in every human heart, including Christians, lives a little puny Pharisee. And the only way that that Pharisee doesn't express himself in the Christian heart is through the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so what to avoid isn't just about Pharisees, it's about us and listening to what Jesus is denouncing because whatever Jesus is denouncing, I don't want to be named in my own life because it can't be good if it makes God upset. And secondly, of course, what to uh, emulate or to imitate, to prize with this woman, this little old nobody who managed to get into the word of God forever with two little pennies. So that in itself says, whoa, Something's going on here. If you can make it into the eternal word of God with two little pennies, what could be done with more? Wow, it's just amazing. Number one, then, all right? Behavior to avoid. So during this verbal spanking here, 45 and 46, while Jesus has his everyone's attention, it says Jesus turns his attention to his own disciples, and uses the word beware. Now, for me, first point, the Lord sounds the alarm to his disciples. Proseko, in the Greek, it means to be on a state of alert, to give focused, vigilant attention, so that you are not deceived. So he says to his disciples about the Pharisees' bad behavior, you beware. Because some of this behavior is subtle. Some of this behavior flies under the radar. You could be doing this and not even know you're doing it. So he says, beware. Live with intentionality. Monitor what's going on in your brain and in your heart. The Bible says, above all things, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. So Jesus is saying, be on guard. Pay attention to what's going on between your two ears because wrong thinking is going to bring wrong behavior. Now, beware, he says, there's something appealing about greed, the praise of men, to be seen as better than others. There's something attractive to the fallen human heart. The human condition is open to being elevated above you. To look down my nose at you, that's a natural inclination of a daughter of Eve and a son of Adam, unregenerated, you see. So he says, you better watch out. Now, sure, we roll our eyes. Hollywood mega stars with mega money. We roll our eyes with disdain when they waltz into the courtroom on DUI number three 
We roll our eyes, the paparazzi's there, the oohs and the ahs when they move about. They're escorted by bodyguards with sunglasses out to their stretch limo, and they retreat up onto a high hilltop overlooking the Pacific Ocean, far behind the iron gates a mile high. We roll our eyes, but if we're honest, there's a little twinge of envy, a little tad of jealousy. I wonder what life like must be like for them to live that way. Well, the fact remains that there's something attractive about what the Pharisees are doing, or the Pharisees wouldn't be doing it. Nor would you still see vestiges of that kind of behavior in the church today. You can still see it. Why? Because we like it. That's why we do things. We do things because we like them. So Jesus says, beware, you're going to like to do things that are destructive and God rejects those things. So you best be paying attention to what you like and what you don't like and pray to God that he changes what you like to become something you dislike, especially if it doesn't go with God. So, you know, he's sounding the alarm and now he's going to list their bad boy behavior. He says, Jesus calls these teachers of the law, teachers of the Old Testament, religious scholars, Bible teachers, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, all fall under the label teachers of the law. So he says, listen, listen to them. Look at them. There are six things. Let's go through them. There are only two sentences, but Jesus manages to smack them six times in two sentences because he's the Lord. Number one. They love to walk around with long, flowing robes. All right. So what are they saying with that? Hey, look at me. Look over here in my fancy clothes. Pay some attention to this, because I'm all that, because I'm wearing all this. All right? Now, (laughs) that's not in my notes. It just happened to come out. Just That was a lucky one. (laughs) Not really lucky, you know, blessed, whatever. They have COA syndrome, center of attention syndrome. You know the sort? When the conversation isn't about them, they get very sad and depressed until it comes back around to them and the glory of them. Well, oh, you got so silent there. They want to turn heads. They want to be noticed. Matthew 23 puts it this way. Everything they do is done for people to see. Uh, They did so many of these things. I'll just give you one in addition to the long flowing robes and the tassels and all of that. I mean, they used to uh, wake up in the morning and not groom themselves so that you would say in the marketplace, oh, pastor, are you fasting? And they would go, oh, you noticed? (laughs) No, A, they were not fasting. B, they were trying to appear like they were fasting. And so they would have bedhead, you know, and and so they would just make it look worse. Now, bedhead is not a problem I've ever had, as I have mentioned. I I come complete with no possibilities of that ever happening. And so, yeah, they were a real mess. So 
Jesus begins with the close. The word in the Greek is stole. Now, where we get the word stole, and in fact, it's transliterated from the Greek to English, S-T-O-L-E. We get the, the academic stole that we wear and the graduation gown. This is what we're talking about. Now, uh, as we have stoles of different colors and lengths and hoods or no hoods and lengths, they all mean something, as did in their day. In fact, they still have something called the talus that Jews wear. It's like a stole, and it's got fringe on the bottom, and it all has different meanings, right? It's one thing to wear your graduation robe at graduation. It's another thing if you're wearing it every day. Now, this is what they wanted to do. They wore it to Kmart. They wore it to the post office. They wore it to, to take a walk in the park. They wore it every day. And Jesus said, give me a break. For the day, it's nice, but not to be acknowledged by men. And so they made their tassels on the edge long because in Numbers 15, where we've been in the Old Testament study, uh, the Lord said, put some tassels on there so that you remember that God hears you. You remember to pray. And so the longer the tassels meant the longer the prayers and, and also the more I think about God. You see, I think about God more than you, and I make the tassels long. The other thing I learned about long, flowing robes is it exempted them from physical labor. Ah, yes. And so they'd stand around, watch other people work, and they'd say, I would, oh, oh, I would love to lend a hand, but what would I do with these long, beautiful garments? And so Leon Morris, commentator, said long robes were signs of distinction, of gentlemen of leisure. Oh, yes. Fancy clothes, fancy education, fancy chariot, fancy house, fancy acquaintances. Look at me. Aren't I great? Jesus said, watch out for that. Watch out for that. Second thing, he says, They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. So rabbi meant my great one. So they love to hear that. And they had lots of other titles. You know, like today, the most reverend, honorable bishop of his holiness, whatever. Uh, They had their own things, right? And they they went shopping to the mall, not looking for a bargain, but looking for somebody to praise them. And the more people gathered, the better, the louder. Rabbi, most honorable teacher, esteemed rabbi. Oh, yes, you were feeding the beast within them. And they loved it. Their heads would get so big, you know, the Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade floats. Oh, yeah, you'd be pumping them up, you know. And they loved it. They ate this stuff up, you know. Rabbi, great one. Now. Most of you know that I spent four years in Japan with our family. Peter was born there. Uh, we, I taught in a mission school, and I was called sensei. Sensei means master. The Japanese people show huge respect to senseis. When you walk into the classroom, everybody stands until you seat them. 
They make way for you in the hallway. You get special treatment everywhere when you're a sensei. In fact, you do not call yourself a sensei. When someone asks you what you do, there's a humble term for the word sensei, which is kyoshi. Now, I've told this story before, but it's funny. I'm going to tell it again. So I'm driving on the wrong side of the road, first of all, because there it's the right side of the road. And I got stopped. I don't know for what, you know, I got stopped by the police. And the police said, what are you doing here? You're a foreigner. And I said, hokuriku ni hateraiteimasu. Kyoshi desu. I work at the college on the hill. I'm a humble teacher. And he said, sensei desu ka? Are you a master? And I said, so desu. Yes, I am. Sumimasen desu. I have done a rudeness to you. And now, I was like, under my breath, in English, I'll let this pass once. <laughs> you stop me again, buddy. What's your supervisor's name? Namewa? That kind of treatment can corrupt you in a heartbeat. And God has a way to take you back down to earth. Because when I came back, I went from that to substituting in the Los Angeles City schools. We weren't in Kansas anymore. Oh, my word. Martin Luther wrote this. A lady stopped him after one of his sermons. Great reformer, changed the world. We're sitting here because of his efforts, his Protestants. That was the best sermon I've ever heard anyone ever give. And he said, I know, the devil already told me the same thing. <laughs> Now, we got to be careful with all of these accomplishments because we should be ambitious for God. We should excel. We should use our gifts and abilities for him. And when God uses us, it is sometimes a little bit of a wow, but never get mixed up. The wow comes from him, the accomplishments, because of his grace. The second we start to cling to that and think this is something about me and makes you less, then that's when Jesus starts saying, watch out for that. So I'm at lunch with a, a person who also has a doctorate. We're sitting there and we're having lunch. It was his turn to buy. He paid for the meal. The waiter came back with his credit card and said, Thank you, Dr. Smith. And I said to my friend, How do you know you got your doctorate? He goes, Oh, I put it on my credit card because you get better service. And I thought, Hey, I need to do that. <laughs> And then when I got in the car, the Holy Spirit said, Excuse me? What do you need to do? <laughs> I don't think so. And, you know, God help us. God, just have mercy on our poor, misguided souls that think because I can kick a ball, because I went to school for 10 years and still paying on my school bill, <laughs> 
because God has blessed me in an occupation or gave me the right parents or did whatever he did to give us something that we could say, well, look at that. Why do we turn such a beautiful thing into a reason for God to have to chastise us? Paul the Apostle said, you know, he's done a lot with me. And a guy like me could get a big head. In fact, I started to get one. And then suddenly, I got a delivery. This is a messenger from Satan. I've got a package for you, kid. A thorn for my flesh. Paul says, a messenger of the devil brings me a thorn in my flesh, meaning I got a problem. Why? In the context of being able to be grounded to know who I really am without the grace of God so that I don't be led astray to think that anything God is doing has anything to do with me. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. The second you start thinking it's all about you, that's when the trouble begins. Guard yourself from the pitfall of turning a good thing into a bad thing by giving God the glory. Uh, Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-one. do you not love this verse? The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. You're tested when someone says, you know what? No one ever does it like you. No one can do this thing. This is your thing. Man, look at you. You're tested. The Bible says you're tested. What do you do in your heart right there? And I'll tell you what I do every time I get a little tempted to think, oh, wow. Whenever I get tempted like that, I have a picture in my head. Now, last night, my sister turned 50. We went to her birthday party. For some odd reason, they were playing all disco tunes. Loud. Unfortunately, I knew every last word. And then I saw a little bit of this happening. You know, I wasn't even thinking. And it's just the part we were moving and grooving to the... Okay, never mind. It, all I have to do when I'm tempted to get a little puffed up is picture. I have a picture in my head that I often go to of me, drunk, 19 years old, high, immoral, rude, blasphemous, dropping profane language. That's what I can be without God. That's who I am. That's who I am. That's what I bring to the table. What I brought to God was that. Everything good from that point on, he brought to the table is a fruit of his doing. I'm, it's a trophy of what God could do with a disco king. Please, next time you think you're all that, just turn on the Bee Gees. <laughs> and remember, three, they love the most, we've got to move faster. They love the most important seats in the synagogue. Translated today, they love being on the platform at church. Now, the synagogues were much like our churches today. The president called of the synagogue would sit on the platform facing the congregation. Any attendance would also. In many churches, it looks just like a synagogue setup. 
Calvary chapels, we don't like to sit on the platform. It's just one less thing. And so in Romania, they have built platforms to the sky. They're so big and they're so uncomfortable. The service starts with the pastors in suits and I had to walk out behind them. The music starts, the crowd stands, and the pastors come in, and you walk up the stairs, a flight of stairs, <laughs> and there you are, facing the entire congregation. 500 people staring at you, sitting there, and watching your every move. They loved it. The bad boys. They lived for that. They always, every Sunday, can I be on the platform? Just while people looking at me and acknowledging me. Special seating, preferred seating, VIP parking, VIP lounges, platinum service, hotels with floors. The elevator won't even go up unless you have the special card. Businesses capitalize on this fallen condition of the human soul to feel like there's just something different about me. I'm a little bit higher than the rest of you. Now, Flying to Romania, we got bumped up to first class. Now, I've never been in first class. That should surprise most of you. Wow, what a difference. It was like being in a, one of those massage chairs that kicked back to a bed. I had a flat screen TV. Uh, the guy I was with, he, fly, he flew over 100,000 miles as a missionary. And so they just bumped us up. And he said yes. And we did. They wait on you hand and foot. It was, it was unbelievable. And then I got up. And I'm walking around because it's a long flight. And I peeked out the curtain to the rest of the commoners. <laughs> and they're all scratched up like this. And I thought, hmm. This is nice. And then Steve told me, this seat goes for $5,000. Well, no wonder when people were passing, they were checking us out and looking at us as they passed by our section to the back of the plane. Jesus says, watch out. The church has nothing to do with the world. It's just the opposite. You take the bottom to be on the top. Don't get enamored. And if I bump you up, I bump you up. Enjoy it one time and let it go. Hold on loosely to these kinds of perks. And then he says, watch out. You know, they love the places of honor at banquets. Oh, they want to be at that bridal table. It's okay to be at the, the table next to the bride and groom because that's where we put you. But that's what they want every single time. We want to be seen there. Look at me. And the Lord says, take the lower seat so that when they come in and they say, hey, could you, uh, uh, if you're in the high seat, you might have to get up and move and, and be embarrassed in front of people. Take the lower seat and then you'll only find that the only way up, the only way to go is up and you'll be blessed and honored. It's really hard to not want people to think more highly of you than they ought. My son, Zachary, when he was 12, said to me, Dad, in, congreg- in the congregation on Sunday morning, I'm not hiding from you, but I am looking to sit out of your view because 
I'm finding that I'm raising my hands so that you and mom will see me. So I'm not hiding from you, but I need to be free to worship so that I don't have in the back of my mind, is my dad impressed with me? I had a friend at Bible college who was very demonstrative in worship, very hands and everything. And I noticed that he wasn't after a while anymore. Very still. You didn't even notice him there. I said, what's going on with you? Are you depressed or what's going on? And he said, the Lord dealt with me about something. He said, I, I was very demonstrative, but I was also hoping that other people saw that and thought more highly of me as a result. Look at him. He's spiritual. He said, so it's ruined it for me. So I'll just stand in the back and worship the Lord. If I know that nobody's watching me, then I'm free. You see, it's in all of our hearts. Let's look at this last two inverted. He says, for a show, they like long prayers. So they prayed. Jewish prayer time was 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3. And whenever that hour struck, wherever you were, you were supposed to pause for a moment and pray if you were a Pharisee. As most of you know, the Pharisees would find a place in town right around 8.59. All right? And uh, they would make sure that they would be there. And then 9 o'clock strikes and they bow their head in the middle of traffic for a long time. And people would look, oh, man. Oh, look at how spiritual they are, you see. Now, I love this about long prayers. G. Campbell Morgan rightly said that when a man is away from his wife and the journey is short, the letters are short. But the farther he is from his wife, the longer the letters become. Morgan said that some people must be a long way from God because their prayers are so long. Now, in corporate praying, prayers are not to be long. You're supposed to be considerate of other people's time and attention span and what edifies them. It's not time to be long-winded in your prayers in a group. It's slightly insensitive and slightly rude. You're not trying to be. Your heart is in the right place. But long-winded prayers are for your quiet time. They're not for when you're corporately with somebody. Make your prayers short concise, because God knows what's on your tongue before it ever makes its way to your mouth. Is there a place for long prayers? Yeah, Jesus prayed all night long when he was alone. You see, the pagans are chastised for prayers that babble on. Let it not be mentioned among us. We got a thought, we bring it before God concisely. And we leave it there. Amen? Last one. Um, And then they devour widows' houses. Katestio in the Greek, to gobble down ravenously, to eat up or consume, to rob or exploit someone out of something. So now the prior descriptions of this, you know, self-absorbed person who thinks they're all that and it's just really uh, out of line. 
We think of that person kind of sick and disgusting and pathetic. But you don't see how evil they are until this line. They're evil because of the greed, because they're so self-centered. And so they devour widows' houses. Here's what happened. The widow would entrust her, her savings and the deed to her house to the Pharisees, who would milk the widow out of her savings, out of her children's inheritance, and out of the home she lived in. It didn't matter to them. Because why? These are kind of people who just care about themselves. It's all about them. There's no mercy. There's no grace. The widow was the most vulnerable person in the uh, whole congregation and in the nation at that time. Isaiah 117 says, plead the widow's case, not fleece the widow's estate. But they were after that money because they were self-centered, greedy, self-absorbed men. And the Lord says, these men will be most severely punished. Today, do we do any better with unscrupulous evangelists who come into the homes through the television set, into widows and shut-ins, and start talking theological garbage, saying, if you give us this, God will give you that. And they send in more than they can afford. Is there any difference between that? The fancy clothes, the fancy watches, the fancy limos, the fancy planes, the fancy mansions. The look at me, look at me on the platform, on the platform. Look at my suit, my suit, my flowing suit. Where is there a difference? It's all the same. 2,000 years. And you go, check. It's still going on. Is it any wonder Jesus said, beware. Beware. So, in the midst of all this, in walks a little widow. He looks up. He's looking at the tithe boxes in the back. He sees a lot of hoopla going on. Rich people with long robes, that whole deal. And in comes a cool breeze, a widow with a couple pennies. Here's the paraphrase. As Jesus looks up, he's watching wealthy people pass by the tithe boxes. And making sizable donations with the customary fanfare. And in the mix, he sees a poor widow passing who puts in a couple quarters. Jesus wants everyone to know, listen up, crowd. This woman has just contributed more than everyone combined today. You see, these folks gave from their abundance what they could spare out of their wealth. But she gave sacrificially out of her poverty because, really, that's all she had. So Jesus, Lord of the temple, head of the church, is watching the tithe box area. And he knows the givers and what they give. You'll notice that he knows the amount that she gave. The temple was equipped to receive tithes and offerings much like ours today. They did not pass an offering played in the temple. They had 13, what is called in the Greek, a long name, gazufalakion. And what, they mean, what it means is a tithe box. It's a chest. They had 13 tithe boxes. Six of them were labeled according to the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the Jewish history book. 
tell you how Judaism unfolded through the centuries. So in the Mishnah, it says that these 13 boxes had labels on them. There was a little opening that you could put your offering in. Six of the boxes were labeled free will offerings. One of them was labeled tithes due. One of them was labeled past tithes due. (laughs) Interesting. I told my wife that, and she said, that's not a thought that we would think today. (laughs) Past tithes due. Uh, Money for... Animal sacrifices, the doves that were constantly being used, especially by women who were uh, needing to come to the temple once a month anyway. And so they had to uh, bring money for that and money for animals, money for the wood uh, and all of the boxes like that. And they were just there. And a trumpet would sound and it was tithe time, but you could come and go and you could always use the tithe boxes So now they're blowing trumpets, and some rich people are coming in. It's Passover. It is packed in there, and the tithe box thing's going clang, 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 clang. And you hear, ooh, ah, hmm, who's that? Okay? And then somebody slips by. She's kind of bent over. She's in rags. She's got two little thin coins, and she pops them in. No sound. And Jesus goes, there's no trumpet? I'll take care of that. And Jesus, the Son of God, trumpets, praises down from heaven upon this widow. Well, that's unbelievable. It's a wow. And now what's going on here? Well, first of all, she puts in two copper coins called leptons in the Greek. I know you like me to be thorough, so I did some homework, and here's what it is. Two leptons, according to Poole's book here, Commentary. The value of a lepton can be determined like this. A denarius is one day's wage and equals six mias. One mia equals two pondians. One pondian equals two isarines. One isarine equals eight leptons. When you figure it out, two leptons is 1% of a denarius, 1% of a day's wage. You know what? It's a buck fifty. It's a buck fifty. She put in a buck fifty. She tossed in one dollar and fifty cents, the price of a next couple meals. And Jesus says that one fifty is more than all of the thirteen boxes totals combined. The one fifty is more. Ah, now what are they both saying? The woman and Jesus, and then we're done. Number one. The woman is saying, it's Passover. I want to join in. I want to go to church. It's Passover. It's the best time of the year. There are two million pilgrims in Jerusalem, and I'm going to be one of them. What do I have? I know the Old Testament says, please don't come to me empty-handed. No one is to appear before me without anything in your hands. That's just kind of rude. You don't do that with people. You don't do that with the Lord. Old Testament. So she says, I've got something. A neighbor gave me a couple coins. I've got something. So she says, I want to participate. I've got something. I'm going to give it. Oh, King David. Didn't King David, she's thinking to herself, King David said, I won't give the Lord anything that didn't cost me something. That's not an offering. That may be nice, but it's not the real sense of giving. David said, I've got to feel it. 
I got to feel a little pinch to think, oh, this is biblical now. So she says, I want to be in compliance with the Old Testament. I want to be a part of God's people. I want to worship. I have something to give. Someone gave me a couple coins. You know what? Not one of them for God and one for me. She just gets crazy. (laughs) She gets crazy. She's sick of faith. If I put these in here, the same God that enabled me to have the two coins, he'll, he'll take care of me. So she puts them in there. And Jesus says, wow. 2 Corinthians eight twelve says, For the, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So, in other words, God looks at her and says, I'm not judging you by what you don't have. I'm judging you by what you do have and how you're using what I did give you. And now this is just amazing. Now what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying Christian achievement is relative. The outward comparisons are inaccurate and tell you very little. Now, here's what I'm saying. If a wealthy man writes a check for $200 for something benevolent and a person on fixed income, meager, writes a check for $100 toward the same thing. The world will say, who gave more? The wealthy man who wrote $200 toward this thing or the man with a limited income who wrote $100? Well, the world says the $200 is more than the $100. And heaven says, no, excuse me, the $100 is way more than the $200. Now, that's heaven's king kingdom. It's upside down. When I was at a different church in a different denomination at a district council, somebody would get up and in a booklet, you could find the top 10 giving churches to missions in the district. And so there was sort of a little contest going on. The top 10 were always listed and the big mega churches were always at the top. Of course, there's one you drive by on on uh, Highway 50 in Sacramento. You can see it from the freeway. It's gigantic. They're always in first place. And I started to think, and it used just to bother me. Is that church really in first place from God's point of view? Or are there churches in the district that really, from God's list, are in first place? Because what they've given proportionally to what they have is more than the thousands of dollars given by that big church. You see? What Jesus is saying, my friend, is he's saying God has leveled the playing field for all Christians, whether you are poor or rich, whether your personality is weak or strong, whether you have a lot of gifts and abilities or whether you don't. The the playing field is leveled because God will judge you according to what you had and how you used it. And the issue is your heart, not the number. So on that day, when you see a poor man from Botswana who had nothing but bare feet and very little in his life, but was faithful, standing above Billy Graham, more rewarded than Billy Graham, is possible because God is judging Billy Graham by Billy Graham's thing. And this man who had nothing by his thing 
That way, that way, you can't just say, well, I've got two pennies. What does that mean? It puts you right up with Billy Graham. Because you gave what you had. You were faithful with what God gave you. What a difference. Suddenly, the shy man who's giving his testimony is of greater value in some sense than the silver-tongued evangelism whose gifting and calling makes it very easy to do this. But when the shy guy says, I'm going to share the gospel at the bus stop, excuse me, sir, the Lord loves you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not making fun of you. I, I'm just saying there are people like that, right? God says, bingo, bingo. Ten times this. Because he felt it. I walked out of a Safeway once. I was working at Pepsi. I missed my lunch. I didn't have breakfast. I was doing labor. I was starving. Three o'clock in the afternoon. I had five minutes, a little window. I ran into Safeway on Mission Street, San Francisco. I get this honking sandwich. Turkey and Swiss. I come out, and a man is standing right there and looks at me in the face and says, I'm hungry. And I went, oh, so am I. And I gave it to him. I like to do that. That's one of my things. I like to do that. I walked away. I didn't have time to go back in. I realized I don't have time. I'm now going to have to wait all the way to dinner time. And be so hungry. And I felt like the Lord said, that's giving. You felt it. It's not the same when I buy two sandwiches, one for me and one for him. It's nice. Not the same. Not the same when I say, you know what, buddy? I'm going to split this sandwich. Good. Nice. Not the same as I'm going to go without something because I'm giving and it's going to pinch me a little. Ah, heaven goes, woo, you got it. Now we're talking biblical giving. Now he doesn't diss all the other efforts. He didn't say the rich, you know, some of those rich, they were doing it nobly. He's not dissing them. He's just saying, let me just tell you, Something valuable and wonderful and beautiful that puts us all on the same playing field. Two pennies put her in the major leagues. What about my two cents? What about yours? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. What a relief to know I'm not competing against Billy Graham. But I'm competing against Ross Reinman. And I can do just as well. (laughs) God, because you know what you expect of me and what you've given me and what you've given my friends, my brothers and sisters here. Help us to remember, Lord, it's not about the numbers. It's not about the outward appearance. It's about the heart. It's about living an honest relationship with God, being broken and walking in faith, loving you, and just giving our all to you. When you say give all, we give all. When you say give this much, we give this much. 
as a man prompts him in the, in the heart. So thank you, Lord, for your wonderful grace. And may we learn this morning what to avoid and what to emulate. Your wonderful name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. Doing the study was very uncomfortable because I saw a lot of those bad boy characteristics in my own life struggling. The only one who can save me and you from any of that is the Lord. So if you don't know the Lord and you're like, oh man, I got a lot of that ugliness in me. There's no way you'll ever change on your own. You need God's help. The Father sent the Son to die for all of that stuff. And then when you believe in Him, I'm talking to the non-Christian here today, Christ will come into your heart and make you new and give you power over that stuff. But you're going to be helpless until you acknowledge that. So we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes. We always like to give people who are seeking the Lord an opportunity to find Him. I mean, that's kind of the whole deal. So if you want to go to heaven and not go to hell, you want to know Christ's love and not be excluded from it, it's as simple as just a prayer of faith. So nobody's looking around. If you're here and you're, you've never asked Christ into your life, he is not your savior and you want to become a Christian, then you just slip your hand up, say, include me in the closing prayer. I'd like to give my life to Christ. You just raise your hand nice and high, and we'll all say the sinner's prayer, get your Bible, kind of come around you, support you, and help you start your Christian journey. Anybody with us this morning that needs the Lord, you can just raise your hand nice and high. Amen. We've got one hand. Somebody else like to join our brother who's responding to the Lord, and yet another one there. Somebody else like to give their heart over. And uh, all right. So let's pray this prayer. Believe in your heart. The Lord says, if you call on me in faith, you believe in your heart, you will be saved. So repeat after me. Heavenly Father, today I give you my life. I'm a sinner. I've been running from you. I'm rebellious. Wash me clean. Make me a new person. Fill me with your spirit. Let me experience your love. I walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, Father, as we close this service, we pray that you would bless us with your love, your peace. Protect us, Lord. Fill our homes with your grace, your love your mercy. May we be kind-hearted toward one another. May we let grievances go today. May we just cut people slack today and just say nice things today and pray for people today and close our mouths more often today just in the awe that someone like us could know someone like you ending up in a place somewhere like heaven. May we just live as a response to the love 
and the goodness and mercy we've been shown. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday.